what happens when I die? Now, the book of Revelation is a book of endings, where the book of Genesis talks about the beginnings of life, the beginnings of our planet, the beginnings of our world. The book of Revelation looks forward to the end. And as we noted on Sabbath morning, when we talked about the day the devil dies, that there is death mentioned in the book of Revelation. And a lot of people have questions. What is death itself? What happens when I die? Is there some great beyond? Is there nothing at all after death? Is it possible I recycle and come back through life again? Do I float off and have conscience? What actually happens when I die? This is a vitally important topic, the understanding of which should bring a great sense of comfort and peace and hope as we look forward to the coming of Jesus. So tonight's message, what happens when I die? But before we study God's word, we need to start with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who not only creates us, but communicates with us so that these great, from our perspective, seeming mysteries are clearly revealed in your word. Help us now to see from that word what your truth is. And again, beyond just a mere understanding, Lord, help us to see the application in our lives that we can trust you wholly, that your plan is good, and that beyond the grave there is the hope of seeing Jesus. Lord, reveal to us Jesus tonight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I would suppose that it's quite possible, in fact, I've been in a lot of conversations, where people jump to what happens when I die, and they're not even square on what it means to be alive in the first place. Okay? People talk about how death is a mystery, blithely assuming that we all know what it, like, what it means to be alive. But I'm going to challenge probably a lot of thinking tonight that the Bible not only tells us about death, but it also tells us about life, and it may not be what you think it is. So let's, instead of starting the book of Revelation, that book of endings, let's go back to the very beginning and see, first of all, what life even is, and then we'll understand what death is. Does that make sense? So before we learn about death, we first have to understand about life. What does it mean to even be alive? What is life? Genesis chapter 2. I told you we'd be going back to Genesis, the very beginning there. Genesis chapter 2, now we're going to go to verse 7. Now we know that the Bible says that God created man, as we just had in our question and answer session, in his own image, male and female, and that's what it tells us in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, it breaks down the actual process involved in creating man, in bringing him into existence. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we find how God executed this plan of creation. And it says in verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of, and you're going to find two things, of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the, what's the next thing? The breath of life. And man became a living, now in my version here, it says a living being, okay? Other versions will say a living creature, or even man became a living person. The King James Version, if you have that this evening, says, and man became a living soul, okay? Now, this is a very, very important. This is the very beginning of humanity, and it not just says that God created man and then goes on, it tells us how God created man. It was in his image, and then he stooped down and formed man from the dust of the ground. Thus he made a body, right, the physical parts of him. And then he breathed into him what the Bible calls the breath of life. So you have the dust and the breath. And it says, and man became a living soul. So we're going to draw out three important points from this one passage. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, when it talks about the creation of man, there are three things that I want you to see. Look in your study guide, and we're going to fill in the blanks now. 
First of all, and I know this might have seemed like the most basic thing in the world, but I want you to see that this is a fact. God made or formed or created man. Is that clear? God created man. Okay. Thus, think about this logically. Thus, there was a time when man simply wasn't. Does that make sense? That what, what was man before God made him? Nothing, right? So if God hadn't made the man, would there be a man? No. There would be nothing. Now, I know this sounds like, duh, and I know duh isn't a big theological term, right? But think about the logic of this. There was a time when there wasn't man. Humanity did not exist. And then God created man, and man came into existence. No one is, like, revolting. No one, But this is such a powerful fact. There's a time when we weren't. Then God made us. Then we were. Right? We go from wasn't to is. Now, we're fine with that concept, but I want you to put it in your mind, because I'm guessing that though you recognize it or not, that's a pretty radical concept. There was a time when we weren't, and only by God's creating us did we come into being. Okay? Now, how did he do that creating process? Still right there in verse 7. Again, look at it again. And the Lord God formed man of, and so here's God's formula for life, our second line. God's formula for life is dust, right? The dust of the ground. Plus, by the way, if he had just formed the dust of the ground into a body, would that be a living soul? No, it would be a very well-formulated sandcastle, right? A very intricate with cells and eyeballs and tendons and, and all kinds of toenails. Who knows what's on this thing? Perfect in every form, but would it be alive? No. He forms a body out of the dust of the ground, and then he stoops down and breathes into his nostrils, into his airway, right? The breath of what? Life. So dust of the ground plus the breath of life. Now watch this now. And notice what the text says again. And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So the dust of the ground plus the breath of life equals a soul. So far, you're like, good, 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 good. But now, notice what the logical conclusion is. Basically, you don't have a soul. Now, I'm guessing that you don't often walk into church and people talk about you don't have a soul. <laughs> In fact, that's usually a bad thing. Oh, this guy is so evil. He just doesn't have a soul. None of us have a soul. We are a soul. Do you see that from the text? There was a time when we weren't. Then God stooped down and formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that combination of the dust of the ground, a body, plus the invigorating breath of God's life, animates and creates a soul that had not been there before. So you weren't, then you were formed from the dust of the ground, breathed into, and you became a living soul. It's a very simple formula. Sitting right there in Scripture, but understanding the foundations of life helps to resolve the mystery that is death. Many people have a hang-up because they have the impression that you've got death, but then what happens to my soul? As though it's a possession. Or they have a picture that God created a host body, and then God breathed into him a living soul, 
Thus, when that body dies, your soul goes, you got to do something with it, right? Or that the soul pre-existed and God took one off the shelf or took one from heaven and stuck it into a human body for a time being, and the body falls away and you've got to deal with this soul. But the Bible doesn't paint that picture. It simply says there was a time when you weren't, then God created you out of the dust of the ground, breathed in your nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Biblically, you don't have a soul. Biblically, you are a soul. And that understanding of what life is changes radically the misconceptions of what death is that are prevalent in the world today. We've got to understand what it means to be alive before we can tackle what it means to die. So now we can move on to what is death. If that's what life is, then what is death? Well, we didn't have to wait too long because the wages of sin is death, right? And the first two chapters of the Bible are perfect. Great. But the Bible is much longer than two chapters. And, and by chapter 3... We saw those first created beings sin against their creator and bring upon them the wages of sin, which is death. And then the same God that brought man into existence now has to explain to man what death is. So from Genesis 2, verse 7, we go to the very next page, Genesis chapter 3, and notice when the Lord meets with the man and the woman after they've transgressed his law, He explains, we'll start with verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, now pause right here, husbands, you should listen to your wives. (laughs) But notice the implication is God said, don't eat of the tree. And she comes along with the fruit and says, do eat of the tree. And who did he listen to? His wife, instead of God's command, right? Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. So this is the consequence of your sin. Here's what happens. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the way, were they supposed to, did they have a different diet before the fall? By the way, we're going to have a presentation on that too. Right? Got to keep coming. But in consequence, he said, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Now look at verse 19. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until what happens? Till you return where? To heaven. Is that what it says? No. You return. You can only go back to some place where you were. Does that make sense? So you return to where? The ground. Why would you return to the ground? Because that's where you came from. It's only logical. Notice he says, that's exactly what he says. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. And then here's the premise. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Do you catch that? For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So in Genesis 2, it tells us what life is. Genesis 3 tells us what death is. And from that launching point, that foundational understanding that occurs in the very beginning pages of Scripture, the rest of Scripture harmonizes with what the Lord says which shouldn't be surprising because all Scripture is God-breathed, right? So God is going to be consistent with his own picture of life and death throughout his word. Life is simply the formation of man from the dust of the ground and the breath of life animating that dust, therefore creating a living soul. Death is simply then the returning back to the dust from which you came. Now let's watch this play out in the rest of Scripture. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. The wisest man in the world ponders the greatest questions of mankind. Ecclesiastes. And we're going to go to chapter 12. And here he writes poetically. 
And he uses a lot of different metaphors for death. Okay? We'll start with verse 6. Notice what he says here. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting with verse 6. And I'll give you time to find it. That's no problem. I want you to see that it's right there in your Bible. Whether it's the Pew Bible or the one you brought with it, every Bible has these same texts in it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 6. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. That's a poetic way of saying before you die. Or the golden bowl is broken. Or the pitcher shattered at the fountain. Right? All these things that used to be whole are now broken and ended and done. Right? This is a poetic way of saying, remember God while you still have life before you die. Or the wheel broken at the well. It's poetry. But now he explains what happens when you die. Verse 7. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit, because remember there's two parts, right? There's dust of the ground and the dust goes back to the ground. And the spirit will return where? To God who gave it. Whose spirit is it that animates all life, that keeps life going? God's. Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Colossians talks about God's creative power through Jesus Christ, and in him all things consist. We live and breathe and have our being by the breath of God. And apparently, when death occurs, it simply returns those two elements to their original source. The dust goes back to the ground, and the breath goes back to God's who gave it. Does that make sense? So there were two elements going in to create, and then those two elements go back to where they were. They return. Both of them say, return to the ground, return to the Lord. That's what happens. Look at Psalm 104. Back to the left, just a few books. Psalm 104, verse 29. The 104th Psalm, verse uh, 29. Here he's talking about the wicked and how the Lord will deal with them and how the wages of sin is death. And here again, this time David, not Solomon, is writing, but you'll notice the consistent picture of what death is. Psalm 104, verse 29. He says to the Lord, You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their what? Breath. Thus they die and return, what? To their dust. Do you see the two elements? The breath and the dust. The breath goes back to the Lord, and the dust goes back to the ground. Repeatedly you see this theme. In fact, it's so common, it's, it was so understood, that the apostle James employed the separation of body and breath for death in James chapter 2. Let me show you something. I, I think this is really fascinating. James chapter 2 and verse 26. Just after the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we find the book of James. James chapter 2 and verse 26. Now, he's not specifically talking about life and death, but he's talking about faith and works. And sometimes people try to make an unbiblical division between faith and works. And James says, no, 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 you can't have faith without works. So what does he say? James chapter 2 and verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is what? Dead. So if all you had was a body without the animating breath of God, what condition would that body be in? It would be dead. And he said, in the same way as you understand that, he uses that as a platform to talk about faith and works. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Right? 
So if you claim to have faith, a body of faith, but it's not activated, it's not living in the very presence, it's not being activated by the breath of God, it's just as dead as a body lying there without the Lord breathing into it. Faith without works is dead. He said, just as the body without the spirit, without the breath, is dead. It was such a commonly understood fact that he could talk about faith and works built on that premise, and everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I get that, because we understand what it means to be alive, and we understand what it means to be dead. So very simply, look at this. Let's go to our fill-in-the-blank. Death is simply the undoing of creation. You say that again. Make sure you see it in your, your study guides. Death is simply the undoing of creation. At creation, the Lord formed a body out of the dust of the ground and breathed into it his breath of life. At death, the body returns to the dust and the breath returns to the Lord who gave it. Thus, it's simply a reversal of the creation process returning to its original state or the undoing of creation. Death is simply the undoing of creation. And again, we have here the body, our second one there, The body returns to where? The dust or the earth or the ground, whatever you want to call it. The body returns to the earth and the breath or the spirit, it's the same word in Hebrew, the breath of life, the spirit of God, the spirit of life, returns to whom? God. The dust gets its parts back and God gets his breath back. So let me ask you a question. If you are simply the combination of a body made of dust and the life that God loans you, gives you breath and have your being, right? And you die, so your body returns to the earth and the breath goes back to God, who gave it? What happens to you? But see, there's an implication in the question that there's a you apart from those two things together. You still, we still have rooted in us this idea, oh, but there's a soul that has to... No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say you have a soul. The Bible says that you are a soul. Thus, when the body is separated from the breath of God, you simply aren't. Does that make sense? There was a time when you weren't, then God created you. Then you live a life, you die, and then you go back to that state from which you came. You just aren't. And I, some people are like, what? <laughs> we have no problem saying, yeah, I totally get it. There was a time when I wasn't. But after you die, you simply return to what you were before, which is not. Let's keep studying this out. What is the experience of death like? Now you hear all kinds of fancy reports and people have speculations, but not one of us here, I I assume, (laughs) has experienced this, but the Bible tells us what that experience is like from the first-hand perspective. It tells us what to expect with the experience of death. John chapter 11, let's go there. John chapter 11. As you're finding it, I'll give you the background story here for give you some context. But in John chapter 11, Jesus had a dear friend by the name of Lazarus who fell ill. Now, he was out of town. He was away from Lazarus when this happened. And uh, if you read the story, it's interesting enough. Everybody believed Jesus had the power to heal from the sick, but not necessarily the power to raise from the dead. So Christ purposely allows Lazarus to die. (laughs) In fact, he makes a very bizarre statement, but we'll start in verse 11, right? Now, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus, now what word does he use here? Sleeps. But I go that I may do what? 
wake him up. Now, is he talking about sleeping like trying to get over the cold and flu or sleeping at nighttime? No, well, we know specifically he's not because we just keep reading. Look at verse 12 now. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will do what? Get well. He's on the healing track. Now we're going to go wake him up. That's rude. (laughs) However, Jesus spoke of his what? Death. When Jesus talked about someone dying, he referred to them as having gone to sleep. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Now notice verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is what? Dead. He said he is dead, and the experience that's closest to relate that to is what? Sleep. Our friend Lazarus sleeps. Then he says to them plainly, he is dead. And now look at verse 15. (laughs) And I am glad for your sakes, that I was not there. That seems pretty mean. That you may believe. So he knows he's going to go there. He says, I'm going there to wake him up. So he's not glad for Lazarus' sake that Lazarus died, but he says, now that this has occurred, this is an object lesson I'm going to use to teach you about life and death. Lazarus is now asleep, but I go to wake him up. This is what the experience of death is like. Sleep, repeatedly, is the Bible's equivalent to death. Watch this now. Look at Psalm 13. The book of Psalm, David here writes, verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 3. He's, if you start with verse 1, you can see the agony that David is writing from, his perspective of writing. We can just start with verse 1. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me, will you forget me forever? So he's having a difficulty with God. He's, he's, he's talking it out. He's praying it out to, the God, to God here, right? Verse 2, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes. Watch this now. Lest I do what? Sleep, the sleep of death. Repeatedly. Where did Jesus come up with this concept? No, no, he got it right from the Bible, right? The death is simply a sleep. Watch this now. Daniel chapter 12. We've gone to the book of Daniel previous times. Let's go there now, this time to the end of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. When he sees a picture of Christ's work in the most holy place of the sanctuary that we've talked about in previous nights being concluded, when he steps out and he's returning to the earth as a conquering king, notice what we see here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And by the way, people look for it like, oh, the time of trouble, I'm so scared. But look at the very next words. And at that time, your people shall be what? Delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And then what happens? And many of those who what? Sleep where? In the dust. What's he talking about? People who are dead shall awake. So what is the awaking up from sleep a reference to? The resurrection, right? Those who sleep in the dust, many shall awake, some to everlasting life, but some to shame and everlasting contempt. But regardless of the context there, he's clearly talking about the resurrection at Jesus' second coming when those who sleep in the dust will be awakened to life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's go to the New Testament. By the way, I want you to see there's a whole lot of Bible texts in this study tonight because I want you to see clearly that this is not based on one or two loosely obscure texts. This is a clear 
truth from Genesis to Revelation and all points in between, the Bible is consistent on this picture of what it means to be alive and what it means to die. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 51, the Apostle Paul writes, notice the same language is used. Old Testament, New Testament, from the mouth of Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all what? And what is he talking about? Death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So at Christ's return, some will be alive and some will be dead. He could say some would be awake and some would be asleep, but all of us, whether we sleep in death or are awake and alive, will be changed when Jesus comes. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. Death is like sleep. The experience of death, the Bible consistently refers to as being asleep. And the resurrection then is simply called the time when we wake up. Now, the question is, how deep is that sleep? You might think, well, sometimes when I sleep, I'm kind of half asleep, and those are some of the most miserable nights. You wake up with a headache, you didn't really sleep that well, you had weird dreams, you ate too late, it wasn't really good deep sleep. Is the Bible talking about sleeping like a log, or is it talking about floating in the ether where you're kind of here and kind of dead? How deep is the sleep of death? (laughs) I don't know what, what language I can put to it, but it's real, real deep. In fact, the Bible talks about how deep the sleep of death is. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Again, we're still looking at the experience of death as the Bible explains it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, this may not fit the picture of death that you had coming in here, but I want you to see that this is in the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. For the living know that they will what? Die. By the way, that's a pretty discouraging text, but it's the same lot that comes to all. Unless Christ comes within our lifetime, what's going to happen to us all? We're all going to die. Now, I'm glad that's not our closing thought for tonight. We're all going to die. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, you know. But it's the truth, right? We all are faced, whether we want to face with it consciously or put it off, at some point, at the end of this conveyor belt of life, we'll come an end. For the living know that they will die. So that's what the living know. question is, what do the dead know? According to the passage, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know very little. Is that what it says? They know how much? Nothing. Now that may not fit the picture of what you thought death was. You might have thought, well, I thought that whenever I die, sure, my body, but I'm still thinking and I'm still pining. In fact, I'm regretting these things or I'm, 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 I'm reviewing my life. No, 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 no. Apparently, according to Scripture, you just aren't anymore. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know not anything. In fact, it goes on to say, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. They're just done. Look at verse 6. Also, their love, are they up there somewhere loving people? No. On the converse side, are they up there holding a grudge and hating people? (laughs) No. And their love, their hatred, and their envy have now what? Perished. Their emotions are done. They're not like holding a grudge from the grave and coming back to haunt. No. They just aren't anymore. In fact, verse 6, nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Friends, do dead people come back to visit and haunt places or encourage loved ones they love? Do they hate? Do they envy? Do they boast? Do they plant? No. According to Scripture, I know this is the most radical-sounding thought, 
But when you die, you're dead. It's as simple as that. When you die, you're done. Your love is done. Your hatred is done. Your envy is done. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. This isn't the only place that Scripture explains this. Let's go on. Psalm 146. Now, I know that there are many people that have this picture in their mind that when we go to heaven, which happens apparently as soon as you die, right? There's this picture that at the moment you die, you float off to heaven, or worse yet, you do something else, but, you know, that you're definitely conscious, you're definitely thinking, you're definitely planning. And if you're a good Christian, you're loving the Lord and you're praising his name. Watch what happens, 146, Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. He says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. Why? Because look at verse 4. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, what happens? His plans perish. You know, I keep a calendar on my phone all the time. And when I, when I miss, when I'm not looking at my phone, my life goes haywire. Okay, stuff is bad. Right? But I keep a calendar, and, and, and I have a wife who helps me look at my calendar and all these things. Right? But if I were to die tonight, my calendar might have on paper lots of things for me to do, lots of plans, lots of scheduled events. But will I be there for them? No. My plans are done. That's it. It's over. And why does it say it? Because of the foundation we've already built. His spirit departs, which is the breath of God. It's his life that he gives us on loan, right? That animates this body. He returns to his earth. The body just disintegrates back into the dust from which it came. And in that very day, his plans perish. You say, but I thought that my soul, again, there's that understanding that you have a soul, not that you are a soul, goes back to the Lord and and I'll be in in heaven, I'll be with the saints, I'll be singing songs and praising the Lord, might have wings, there might be a harp involved, you know. But is that the picture the Bible paints? Look at this next passage. Psalm 115, just turn back to the left a little bit. Again, still writing about the experience of death and the depth of it. What does it tell us? Psalm 115, verse 17. The dead do not do what? Nor any who go down into silence. Apparently when you go down into the grave, you go down into silence. You don't go up into a big praise session in the presence of the Lord. No, no, no. Just go down. Your love, your envy, your plans, your thoughts, your praise for God, all of it is done. Because when you die, you're simply dead. Now let's turn over. And go back to this book of Revelation. Now, we looked at exit, I mean, Revelation chapter 20 in our previous message when we looked at the day the devil dies. And you might have picked up on something. It mentioned first death and first resurrection and second death. And what, what is this first and second business all about? Well, let's see that it matches beautifully with what we've seen so far. Revelation chapter 12, 20, right? Let's just start reading from verse 1 to recap what we learned Sabbath morning. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now when it says, then I saw, we looked at what uh, Revelation 19 described just before that, and it was a picture of the second coming. And at that point, the righteous are taken with Christ to live forevermore, And the wicked who are alive join the rest of the wicked in the grave, right? They're all dead, right? In fact, look at verse 21. Just run past one verse above it. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the throne, and the birds were filled with their flesh. So anyone who's left on the earth is left in what condition? 
dead, right? With the exception of one person, Satan himself. But he has no one to tempt, no one to deceive, no one to heckle and annoy and pester. He's just stuck in a planet with nobody, nobody living, right? Now, in that picture, it shows an angel binding him here for a thousand years. Verse 2, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now let's think about this logically. Why can he not deceive the nations during that thousand years? Because they're all dead. And they don't have thoughts, they don't have plans, they don't have love, they don't have envy. There's nothing there to pester Noah. They're just done. But apparently that's going to change at the end of the thousand years, yes? Notice what it says here. Till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. There's going to be a change coming at the end of the thousand years. Now, verse 4. During that thousand years, the righteous who are alive with God have this experience. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And if you missed what we did on Sabbath morning, you've got to go, get a me- you've got to go pick up in the back the message, the day the devil dies. We break down Revelation chapter 20, what happens after the Lord returns, this thousand-year period of time. But notice again in verse 4, during this thousand years, those who are taken with Christ at his second coming, the righteous who are living here, In the presence of God, and it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Notice they are a soul. They don't have a soul. So this is them in their body, because the body and the spirit go together to make a soul, right? The souls of those who had been beheaded. By the way, what happens when you're beheaded? You die, (laughs) But they had been beheaded, they had died, but apparently what has now happened? They've been resurrected. The Lord has brought them back to life. They were asleep and God has woken them up, right? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on his hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until when? The thousand years were finished. And he says this is the first resurrection. Talking about those who were beheaded, who were faithful, who did not receive the mark, but they died, they lived their lives faithfully and fully for God, and in this life here on earth they paid the price for that. They died in the hope of Jesus, in the faith of the Lord. He resurrects them. And apparently this resurrection of the righteous at the second coming is referred to as the first resurrection, which implies if there's a first, there's going to be a second, right? Which he's already talked about. The wicked will be resurrected at the end of the thousand years. Are you with me so far? Okay, now let's keep going. Blessed and holy is he who has part in which resurrection? First resurrection. By the way, everyone's going to be resurrected. The question is just, when? Does that make sense? Everyone's going to be resurrected either at the first resurrection, if we die, that is, of course. Anyone who dies is going to be resurrected either at the first resurrection when Jesus comes or at the end of the thousand years with the resurrection of the wicked. This is the first resurrection. But he goes on to explain. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second, what? Death. Has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, let me ask you a question. Have these people died already? Yes, they've died first death. But apparently, if they died first death in Christ and are resurrected in the first resurrection, the second death that's coming at the end of the thousand years has no power over them. So these people have been faithful to the Lord. They have not worshipped the beast, have not received his mark. They've been faithful even unto death. 
And this is called the first resurrection. They've died the first death and thus experienced the first resurrection. So it makes a delineation between first death and second death. Now what is that? Let's go to chapter 20 still. Now look at verse 10. When it talks about the destruction of the wicked, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I put that in there right now because you're going to say, wow, wait a minute, what does this understanding about death do to my understanding of hell? That's just a little advertisement for tomorrow night. Our message tomorrow night is entitled, The Good News About Hell. You got to come back. (laughs) Friends, the... I'm going to tell you something. There is good news about hell. There's great news about hell right here in God's Word. And you might, how can you even say hell is a, you've got to come back. But we're still in our lesson tonight, okay? It's a little plug for tomorrow night. Skip down to verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the, what? Second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Apparently, there are two deaths. There's first death and there's second death. Now, what's the difference between the two? First death, let's go to our study guide here. First death is simply death that is merely temporary. Asleep, where you know nothing, the dust returns to the ground, the breath returns to God, but from which the Lord will awake. Yes? It's temporary. You sleep, then the Lord wakes you up. Second death is a permanent death from which there is no resurrection. By the way, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you need to fear death on this earth? No. Because the same God who can create a body out of dust and breathe into the breath of life, when that last trumpet sounds, when the voice of the archangel is heard and the dead are called to life, they will raise up first resurrection. No problem. Making a physical body is not a difficulty for God at all. (laughs) So first death isn't an issue. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. That's great. So we should not at all costs save our life now because we're all under the curse of death. And even if we're faithful to Christ, will we die first death unless he comes first? Yes. The real question is the resurrection. The second death is what we want to avoid at all costs. First death is simply temporary. God can say, wake up. He can say, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. But second death, it's the same experience. There's just no life again. Do you see the difference? So when the wicked are destroyed, it is a permanent destruction. If you would, an everlasting destruction. Please understand, and this is a little hint for tomorrow night, not an everlasting destroying but an everlasting destruction that's permanent. Nevermore will they have anything to do with anything under the sun. First death and second death. But you might argue, but isn't the soul immortal? I've heard all my life. You've got to watch out for your immortal soul. Don't you care about your soul, your soul? But from this Bible study, we've made it clear, I believe, I hope you've seen, that you don't have a soul. That in fact you are a soul, and that changes our understanding of because if you have this concept of a soul that's a little, you know, I'm not trying to be you know fictitious, but cast further friendly soul, you know, or this little host, this little alien that lives inside of you, that's just passing through your body, it existed before you, you live through it for a while, then you fall over dead, but it just keeps going after, you know. This idea of an immortal soul that always has and always will be. It's not in the Bible, friends. Let's go again to our fill-in-the-blanks here. 
the say, I'm sorry, the term immortal soul is found how many times do you think in Scripture? Nowhere, not even once, zero times is that term found in the Bible. Now, you might have heard it preached a hundred times. You might have heard it talked about. You might have heard it referred to. In fact, you might have had the fear that you're going to lose your immortal soul. But look it up in Scripture. You'll never find the term immortal soul. Why? Because it's not there. You know? It's a concept that doesn't even exist. There is no such thing as an immortal soul. You are a soul. You don't have a soul. In fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite. Put it right there in your study guide. The term immortal soul is found nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches the opposite. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Just before the book of Daniel. Ezekiel chapter 18. And we're going to go to verse 4. The Lord makes this declaration Behold, all souls are what? Mine. And that makes sense, right? He's the creator. It's his breath that sustains them. So if he removes that breath, he's like, that's mine. The body is something that I made, I crafted by hand, and the breath is mine to start with. All souls are mine. And notice this. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And notice this. The soul who sins shall what? But I thought the soul lived forever. According to Scripture, can the soul die? Absolutely. Does the soul die? Yes. The soul that sins shall die. Thus it makes sense that we read in 1 Timothy, corresponding with the Old Testament beautifully with the New The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy, back there in the T section of the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, notice how he describes the Lord God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. And this is one of these long sentences. Well, let's, you know what? Let's start with verse 13. I hate doing it to you. I don't want to give you a discount on a passage. I want you to see the whole sentence, okay? Go to the beginning of the sentence in verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God, and then he describes God as who? God who does what? Gives life to all things. Now, pause right there. Do we inherently have our own life, or are we dependent on God for life? Apparently, life is something we only get from God. It is not ours. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this command without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. You notice they always write with the second coming of Christ in view. Now notice what he says. Which he will manifest in his own time and then he describes this Jesus, this God, who, uh, which he will manifest in his own time, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, right? That's the same name that's written on his thigh when he returns at the second coming, that name, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now look at verse 16. Who alone has what? There is one being in this universe, friends, who has immortality. And it's not you. It's not me. God alone, according to Scripture, has immortality. This concept of an immortal soul does not come from God's Word. It's a foreign concept that has been imbibed and tried to fit hybridly, but now you've got to come up with all these things to do with the soul once you die. Well, if my soul is eternal, I have to... So then you've got to create a place to put it or do something with it when it, as its own separate immortal entity, doesn't exist. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And friends, it's this understanding of what life is 
that makes clear the Bible's teaching of what death is. Death is simply the reversal, the returning, the undoing of God's original creation of man. Does that make sense? Thus God alone has immortality, and thus He can give it as a gift. Speaking of which, recall this. Remember when Adam and Eve disobeyed God? What did God do to end their lives? If you recall, He cut them off from the tree of life, right? Because on their own, what would happen? (laughs) Now, we can have immortality, but notice what the Bible talks about. We put on immortality as a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. You know what's fascinating to me? that because of this misconception about what life is and the resulting misconception about what death is, that we view the Scripture through that incorrect lens and we read even the clearest statements from the Bible incorrectly. Let me show you one. Let me give you a prime example. Go to the most famous passage in all the Bible. John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3 and verse 16, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. You might have seen this particular text raised at every sporting event you've ever seen. (laughs) Somebody has a placard. It's one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, yet one of the most misunderstood in all the Bible. But given our study tonight, I hope you will see the truth in John 3, 16, perhaps for the very first time. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish, but have. Friends, what are the two choices in that text? Perish, which is another word for die, or everlasting life. Somehow we've gotten this idea that if you love the Lord, you get eternal life. And if you don't love the Lord, he's going to curse you with everlasting life. But life and life aren't the two options. Death and life are. Friends, this is a powerful truth, and when we understand it... By the way, look at this next one. The next counter-argument. Yes, yes, but don't good people go to heaven? Well, yes, sure, but not the moment they die. When Christ comes back and raises them from the dead. Look at our study guide one more time. Let's fill in the blanks there. The saved do go to heaven, praise God, right? When Jesus returns. Until then, what are they doing? Sleeping or resting in the grave. There was one individual in the Bible that is called a man after God's own heart. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? King David, right? Oh, he was a man after God's own heart. And if there was a good guy, yeah, he did some bad things here and there, but he repented. He gave us the book of Psalms. He had a walk with Christ that was solid. Surely if there was any good person who would go to heaven as soon as they die, it would be King David. But look at the book of Acts, chapter 2. I want to show you this again. I want you to see that it's in your Bible too. You don't need a special version. You don't have to trick anyone. Just actually read the Scriptures. Acts, chapter 2. If you were there in John, just turn to the right, one book. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost declares, Men and brethren, let me speak to you freely of the patriarch whom? David. (laughs) That he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He said, We're here in Jerusalem. We could take a field trip over to the tomb of David, and that's where his body would remain. Peter was clear about the state of the dead. That when you die, your body returns to the earth. He's like, he's dead, he's buried, his tomb's right over there. And you might say, yes, 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 but spiritually he ascended into heaven. Keep reading. Look at verse 34. For David did not do what? Ascend into the heavens. 
David did not ascend into the heavens. Does that mean that David's never going to go to heaven? No. He's just sleeping in the grave until the resurrection, until Jesus wakes him up and takes him home. Thus, when we go to the book of Revelation, we can read what sounds like such a bizarre passage. Revelation chapter 14. One of these keys of Revelation is this, what happens when I die, this truth about the state of the dead. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. Talking about the, look at verse 12 again. Here's the patience of the saints. Talking about this difficult time of tribulation just before Jesus comes. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those, and it keeps coming back to this, who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are whom? The dead. Does it say blessed are the dead because they are enjoying life in my presence? No. Blessed are the dead because they're simply dead. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may what? Rest from their labors, and their works follow them. Now, the record of who you are, the transcript of your character, is written on the books of heaven, yes? But you, as a conscious, living soul, simply cease to exist until Christ resurrects in the last great day. So let's go to our concluding thought down here. God's Word repeatedly affirms that when people die, they are just dead. It is Satan who lies and says, you will not surely die. You recall that in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, God says, if you eat of the tree of which I command you not to eat of, in that very day you shall surely Satan comes along and says, you shall not surely die. Simple question, who is right, God or Satan? God says Satan is a liar and the father of it. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. God says you will die. The way to sin is death. And Satan comes along and says, no, 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 you don't really die. You just keep going. God says you die. Satan says you don't. While the Bible teaches that God is alone immortal, Satan says you can be like God. This is basically his opening salvo, his opening introduction to humanity. You won't die and you can be like God. God says, I alone am immortal and the soul that sins shall die. And somehow, many, even in the Christian world, have absorbed this falsehood and tried to put it into the Scriptures where it simply does not exist. And by the way, we're going to look at tomorrow night the result of this misconception in our good news about hell message. You don't want to miss it. But let's finish up here. Since God alone is immortal, it is only through a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ that we may receive the eternal life he died on Calvary to offer us. We can live forever, but not on our own because we are inherently immortal, but because immortality is a gift from God that comes only to those who love him and keep his commandments. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, speaking of first death, he shall live. Friends, if you want life after death, if you want eternal life, don't put your faith in some sort of inherent immortality that you have. Say, Lord, I understand that I am simply your creation that you brought me into this world and the only hope I have of eternal life is putting my hand by faith in the hand of Jesus Christ. I know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And Lord, I want that gift. I don't have it on my own. I have to receive it from you. So Lord, let me have the life you've offered me that's only available in Jesus Christ. Could you raise your hand if tonight's has been clear? Has it been a clear? Praise God. Praise God. Now, beyond clear, I want you to go home. I want you to look at these texts again. I want you to count how many texts did we look at? 
Not just in the Old Testament. The whole Bible, literally from Genesis to Revelation in the middle and all the parts in between, the Bible is consistently clear that life is simply the breath of God animating the dust of the ground and that death is simply the undoing of that, the returning of the dust and the breath back to God. And the only hope, friends, that we have of eternal life is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Tomorrow night, the good news about hell. But tonight, let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus being our creator and forming us in his image and breathing into us his breath of life. And Lord, help us to take you at your word that our only hope of life, eternal life, is in the source of all life himself, Jesus Christ. Lord, clear away any cobwebs or any miscommunication, any misconception there might be, and help us to clearly see what your word says about such a vital, important topic. And Lord, when we see the truth about life and we see the truth about death, help us to see Jesus even more clearly. That our only hope is found in him. And let it lead to conversion, Lord. That if we've walked away, we've turned away, that we'll return to our creator and look to him as our only hope of eternal life. For we pray it all in his powerful name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.